This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Delia Efren discusses her new novel, Siracusa. Then PW Assistant News Editor John Marr explores how Pokemon Go is giving a boost to the bookshops. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Very little movement on the uh, hardcover fiction list. We only have two books um, that weren't there last week, but one of them is the new number one that's Magic by Danielle Steele. Uh, And uh, as usual, sold like gangbusters its first week out, a little over uh, 24,000 copies. And uh, we don't have a review of this title, but it's a Danielle Steele contemporary novel. And this one focuses on glamorous white dinners that occur annually in Paris and Mm. three couples who attend them and are connected in various ways. Uh, so uh, that's at number one with a bullet. And then much further down the list at number 13 is Belgravia by Julian Fellows, uh, who is actually the Right Honorable, the Lord Fellows of West Stafford, to give him his full title oh, and good, honors. Good to know. Um, probably best known as uh, he wrote the screenplay for Gosford Park, who's the, oh. one of the creators of uh, Downton Abbey. And uh, this is a dramatic new novel set in uh, the 1840s and uh, sort of with trails going back to the Battle of Waterloo. So some usual rich uh, historical texture there that uh, people have come to expect from his work on Mm. Downton Abbey and other historical dramas. Uh, And that's at number 13. And that's that's it. Um, Everything else has been floating around for quite a while. And uh, one thing I did want to give a note to uh, also is that um, Eli Wiesel died this week and uh, not unexpectedly um, there's been a boost for his book Night right. uh, which is now uh, the number six best-selling book in the country overall uh, and some of his other backlist titles as well. Uh, it's pretty impressive that it's climbed all the way up there. So yeah well and yeah. people people want to read his work to remember him. Yeah well uh, nonfiction. so um, from here on out with the Republican National Convention going all the way through the elections I, I think we're going to be getting a lot of political books uh, and I've even spoken with publicists who are saying my gosh this is going to be a kind of a tough few months trying to get spots for their books either in print mm. or on TV shows newscasts or, or whatever and at number nine is uh, actually it, it's it's kind of a children's book it's called A Child's First Book of Trump by Michael Ian Black illustrated by Mark Rosenthal and uh, we say in the review striking a semi-Susian tone Black explores the quote-unquote strange beast that seems to be everywhere these days, from its propensity for saying I'm the best to its poop that spells out Trump in 10-foot high letters. So that's from that's, that's our review. 
Um, so, uh, anyway, so this, this has hit, uh, number nine and we've described it as kind of a somewhat Susian cross with schoolhouse rock. So next up, Seinfeldia, how a show about nothing changed everything by Jennifer Cation Armstrong. And we don't have a review of this book, which the press material describes as a hilarious behind-the-scenes story of two guys who went out for coffee and dreamed up Seinfeld, a cultural sensation that changed television and bled into the real world, altering the lives of everyone it touched. Uh, Dwight Garner did say in his New York Times book review, her book, as if uh, she were a, a marine biologist, is a deep dive. Perhaps the highest praise I can give Seinfeldia is that it made me want to buy a loaf of marbled rye and start watching again from the beginning. Uh, so that's at number 14. So 19 and 20 are two political books, mostly history. The number 19 is Bush by Gene Edward Smith. And this is in our review, quote, George W. Bush may not have been America's worst president, is as nice as historian Smith gets in this hard-hitting biography. This is a superb recap of critical analysis of Bush's controversial administration. So, and then we have at number 20, a starred review of Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon by Larry Tai. And we say in a review, it is difficult to envision anyone getting Robert F. Kennedy more right than biographer Tai, who does in this superb book. Uh, he beautifully captures Kennedy's contradictions, his emergence from under the hard-to-like father to whom he remained loyal forever, and his growth into a public figure killed by an assassin's bullet. And finally, at number 25, we have Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune, and Random Failure in Silicon Valley by Antonio Garcia Martinez. Uh, we don't have a review of this book, but the publicity material says, imagine a chimpanzee rampaging through a data center powering everything from Google to Facebook. Um, so that's that's basically it. And that's number 25. And that's what we got on the nonfiction list. Wow. Well, um, we're definitely going to keep seeing those political books coming in yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, yep. But uh, I honestly, I would have thought that everything that there was to say about Bobby Kennedy had been said. So nice to know that uh, something something new can, yeah. can be brought out. Yeah. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Delia Efren tells us how a sunny Italian vacation could go shockingly wrong. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Michelle Borba. I'm the author of Unselfie, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Delia Efren on the line. Her new book is Syracuse. Hello, Delia. So glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. So your novel is set in Sicily, in the, the place that it is named for, and is about two married couples and a daughter from the U.S. who decide to vacation there. Now, this could be something great, or it could be a disaster. Tell us about these five people. There's two couples, Lizzie and um, Michael are a New York couple. They're married, and he is a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright who's also writing a novel now and he was very successful when he was younger in his 20s and is worried now in his 40s that he will never recapture that glory and Lizzie his wife is a journalist whose life is a little complicated now because like many journalists we know in New York it is very hard to get work and make a living so her career is a little trembly right now hmm. um, Michael 
we find out at the beginning of this story, is having an affair. So he does not want to go on this vacation to Italy. He does not want the intimacy of a vacation, the sexual expectations. And, of course, Lizzie knows nothing of this, so she is looking forward to it. Um, Our other couple, Finn and Taylor, uh, are from Portland, Maine, and they have a daughter named Snow. And they... uh, Finn and Lizzie, that is, who are not married to each other, once had an affair long ago, like 15 years before, a summer fling that lingers with a certain amount of glow now looking back. And they kind of can't help themselves. They tend to flirt and they don't mean to. So these couples go off together and each of them has secrets from the other. And this is a, this is a novel about betrayal and deceit in marriage. So your your novel is set in Syracuse, uh, which is a popular destination for for tourists. But um, I, I read that you had a, a different uh, a, a feeling about it. There uh, initially, you you loved it, but then it was it became kind of stark. Tell us about um, Syracuse for you and your your feeling there, and why you set it there. I went there like in I forget two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and I. I don't even know why I picked that place. We were going to Italy, and I think I heard that Sicily invented ice cream or something. So um, yes. I was dragging my husband to this place where, you know, the the first gelato place in the world existed. And this turned out really not to be true. Okay. But I read it in some guidebook. Anyway, so we find ourselves there, and I'd never been to Sicily, and this is – this place, the old section, is, which is an island connected to the rest of Syracuse by a little, very short little bridge, um, is, well, its ancient footprint still, rule, still rules because the Romans knocked all the trees down in like 212 BC, and then they built warships with the lumber, and they never planted trees again, and they just sort of paved it with stone. So it still is these tiny windy streets and it's, it's, it's really a stone paradise with tattered buildings and a rather extraordinary central square. But the, so the first day I was there, I thought, my gosh, this is the most magical place I have ever been. And the next day I thought, if I spend one more second here, I'll go mad. <laughs> so I knew if you were going to have, I mean, it was immediately to me as a novelist the setting for a book. And, and if um, you wanted couples, I wanted to write about marriage. If you wanted couples on a vacation to go crazy, they should end up in Syracuse. Well, I was going to say there are some marriages where one day you think this is magical, and the next day you think, "Get me out of here." Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Well, the the other thing that happened uh, a long, long time ago, a psychoanalyst said to me that what we think of is as chemistry is really psychology. Two people falling in love across a crowded room is just one neurosis spotting its other perfect neurotic match. (laughs) Wow. And I find that just so chilling. I mean, it is chilling, isn't it? And yet, you know, in my very long, happy marriage, there was not a day that went by that I didn't know how neurotically perfect we were for each other. And, you know... It was a happy marriage, but in, in other marriages, you see how matched it is, but how toxic it is. Mm-hmm. And I think I, th- I felt that way about my parents because they, they had a, ended up in a very unhappy marriage. But, and as a child, I thought, oh, of course, you know, my father wants to leave my mother. And then I realized 
when I was quite a bit older, that, of course, he didn't have the least interest in leaving my mother. You know, that they needed to be in battle all the time. Right. So marriage is, oh, boy. I mean, I really wanted to explore the dark side of marriage. And what drew your characters, uh, these these two couples, and and well, one the one uh, daughter to Syracuse? Was it was it the same thing? Was it the uh, draw of uh, gelato? I think I used that for Lizzie, yeah, to, to <laughs> why she picks this crazy place. But actually, she has an ulterior motive because her father has told her all about Syracuse because he absolutely loved um, jazz, and after the war, this is really crazy, but after. Mussolini's son, Romano, was obsessed with American jazz. How crazy is that, right? Benito Mussolini's mm-hmm. a fascist dictator, and his son is like in his bedroom listening to American jazz. <laughs> and and after the war, uh, Romano had a jazz concert in Syracuse, and I used that for, you know, things that her father, her father has died, and she absolutely adored her father. And so she she does things to celebrate his memory. And so the real reason they're in Syracuse is really because Lizzie you know, is is remembering her dad, which nobody else kind of, they, they sort of discover that in the course of it. But that's what really drives her there. I mean, I, she just says it's it's the gelato, but it's a more powerful mm. reason. So you, you have these intergenerational tensions as well. Tell us a little bit more about Snow and about how her presence on on this vacation, which would otherwise be two couples, two married couples, um, changes that dynamic? Well, first of all, I just want to say as a writer, an odd number is a really great thing, okay? Like a scene in a movie with three people is always much more fun to write than a scene with uh, two people, right? Mm-hmm. So in this case, I'm making and going from four to five. But what Snow is, was really important character to me, is that she is... <sighs> She's the mystery at the heart of the story. Do you, is she shy or is she cunning? Is she uh, manipulating or is she being manipulated? Uh, should we love her? Should we fear her? Should we worry about her or want to protect other people from her? And that, to me, I mean, Snow sort of slides from the side of the story in Rome to the center in Syracuse. And she was, I mean, she's the very long fuse in the in this that's been lit that is going to you know explode this entire story and uh, i just i've always loved writing children but i've never written a child as, as she, i don't even want to call her wicked cuz she's kind of a mystery i've never written a child like this Hmm. And it was partly influenced, aside from, of course, seeing Patty McCormick in The Bad Seed when I was a child, it was also just, because she's not like that, really, is that is that today a lot of mothers tend to be somewhat fused with their daughters. Mm-hmm. Well, some parents seem to be fused with their children, I should say. And you go sometimes to their house and they don't quite know where they start and the kid ends and you don't quite know which is the adult in the house. Right. Yeah. And I want it, Lizzie in this story does not have kids, so she does not understand Taylor's relationship to her daughter. She sees it as neurotic. And Taylor sees Lizzie as someone who hasn't had children and feels that Lizzie is somehow emotionally incomplete for that because she doesn't have any understanding of what it is to to be a mother, to feel the responsibility and, and love that you feel for a child. So I was exploring also this dynamic, which is that Taylor, of course, isn't really understanding what's going on with Snow, and Lizzie and Taylor don't trust each other because of this 
you know, their prejudices, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to talk about the friendship that the four have um, and and what are the tensions there, um, both back in, in the U.S., but also in, in Syracuse? Well, I mean, of course, on any trip, it never, you know, people aren't born the day they, they go on the trip. So you really need to know what their, what their histories are. And you always do when you write a novel. But, uh, and this is, we should say it's a Rashomon. So each of the four adult characters is telling his version of the story in alternate chapters. And therefore you're finding out what each of them thinks of, of what's going on. And, and some of them say things to you like, I'm going to mess with you. That's who I am, you know, so. Um, they're all unreliable narrators. Right. Um, and, uh, that for me was really interesting. But the friendships, um, the, the, probably the biggest friendship is between Lizzie and Finn, who had the fling years before. And the reason this couple is on vacation together is that they met by accident in a city the year before, and they had such a wonderful time meeting for dinner that they just said, let's do it next year. It's not as if they have spent you know, the time in between together, their lives. I mean, Lizzie and Michael have a New York life and it's sort of chic and literary and all of that. And, and Finn runs a restaurant and he's a real Irish guy. And I think he's, he's a Republican for sure. And Michael isn't, you know, and, and, um, there's a kind of, uh, my, uh, Finn's more working class. And it was so, this is an unlikely friendship. And yet at the same time, they have fun on a trip. Or they have had fun on a trip. And, you know, trips are, I don't know, I don't know how much traveling you guys have done, but have you ever done it with couples? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because you're with them much more than you ever would normally ever be. And vacations in general are unpredictable things, aren't they? And to put Americans um, in in foreign countries, uh, some are good at that, some aren't. And when things start to go south, as they do in this story, because you are aware all the time that we're in Syracuse, that we're heading toward catastrophe, <laughs> you know, they're they're more vulnerable because they're in a foreign country. So you talked about um, the the slow slide toward catastrophe. We can we can see the disaster looming in the distance. What's it like to write that to to sort of keep the tension going in this almost kind of thriller plot rising tension way, um, while also being very deep in the heads of these people who maybe as characters can't see their catastrophe coming. Yeah, I, I tell you, just writing it was hard. I mean, it was hard to switch voices. Because, uh, you know, I'd suddenly get, you know, someone in my head and then their section would be over and I'd have to, oh my gosh, now I have to, you know, I have to go from Lizzie to being Michael to being Finn. It was, and each of them had to have very distinct voices and to write differently. So that was, that was hard. And I had maps. As the story went on, I, look, I never plot, make plot decisions ahead, really. I knew that my book was called Syracuse from the beginning, and I knew that that meant something big had to happen there. And uh, I pretty much knew who it would happen. No, I didn't actually know who it was going to happen to. Hmm. Um, and so, but I knew that I started them out with these problems that, you know, with the affair going and the, you know, and Finn and, and Lizzie having a, a kind of a friendship, a loyalty to each other, because I was exploring as well betrayal and friendship as well as betrayal in in marriage, um, and which is the bigger betrayal, um, although Michael says 
betrayal of this magnitude is the exclusive province of married couples. That is true of marriage, but it is also just his point of view. It was very hard to do, and I don't know if any writers who come on this show talk about the third quarter of a book, but the third quarter of a book is like being lost in the desert. Oh, tell us about that. With no, We've like not had anyone no talk about that. water at all. You get past the halfway point, and it's if you are crawling on sand with no water. In fact, my friend Sarah says that when she gets to that point in a book, she throws herself in the bathtub every five minutes to calm down. So um, it getting through the third quarter where, where everything is as complicated as it can be, and it's getting more – I mean, if you structure a plot, the complications have to really mount up there. And um, – I, I just thought, I'm never going to get through this. I'm never, I can't even remember. What does Finn know? What does Lizzie know? What are they going to find out in this thing that the other didn't know? I mean, I was just, I mean, I was just reeling around. And also, I like to move, I mean, the whole important thing of this book was not only to go back and forth, but to keep the momentum going. So you never got, you never got, uh, blogged down by the fact that you were hearing other points of view. And, and so I had to know where to, how to take you faster through some things and slower through other things. The pacing was critical. Honestly, I, I, it was as hard a, a sort of literary problem as I've ever tried to tackle. And then the fourth quarter comes, and suddenly you're just writing a million pages a day. It's a very strange thing. Hmm. So it sounds like it was a real challenge for you, um, in, like a technical challenge. Yeah, it was it was huge. And also, I was writing in the voices of two men, which turned out to be the most fun in the world. But, um, you know, I had to really, I mean, every so often I would run into my husband's office and say, well, I would say, well, what would he call, I mean, I can't use dirty words on this book. You said there are dirty words in this book, or that's such an old-fashioned term, words, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would say, well, what would he call uh, Michael's mistress here? What what term would he use for it? And, and Jerry would tell me, and then I'd run back to my office. He was like, wasn't totally always um, in touch with the level of vulgarity that guys can use. But I did, you know, I I mean, I really had a great time writing the men, and and. Our audiobook, Darren Goldstein, who's in the affair, he plays Finn in the audiobook. I have four great actors who did the audio. I have John Slattery, who you probably know from Mad Men, and mm-hmm. he plays Michael, and, and his wife in real life, Talia Balsam, plays, plays Lizzie, and Katie Finneran, who's married to Darren Goldstein, and, uh, is an amazing two-time Tony Award winner. She's divine, and so funny too, and she plays Taylor, but Darren said to me, you know, you got the sex right with the men. Hmm. And I, it was as if I'd been given a compliment from the gods or something. I was just so excited. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Delia Efren, author of Syracusa, and um, getting into uh, the voice acting, as you mentioned, for the audiobook. Um, when you're writing this, how does your screenwriting kind of influence your novel writing? Are you thinking in terms of dialogue? Are you picturing an actor as a character? No, I'm not doing that when I when I write 
the book. In fact, a book is so free. You can do anything in a book. I mean, if you decide you suddenly want to write a newspaper article and throw it into the center of your book, you can do that. Not that I did it here, but you can do almost anything. Well, I, I did do something like that toward the end, didn't I? Um, you can do almost anything in a novel, and I love the freedom of that. And in, in the context of of plot, I do love to make you turn the pages. It's something that I, I certainly have learned a lot about that from screenwriting, I have to say. But um, in a novel, you can explore ideas about marriage and friendship and motherhood and these things that I think this book give the book a kind of depth and make people want to think about the nature of marriage or friendship. And and you don't really have that. You don't have all that freedom with a with a screenplay. I mean, you're really just doing a blueprint for someone else to interpret the director and actors and, and you have to distill everything into its essence. And, and, you know, the book is, is your voice, your imagination, the fullness of your story completely and all in your control. Are you able to write, uh, uh, screenplays and, uh, novels simultaneously? No, not simultaneously. No. Um, but I am, Syracuse has been sold to film. Uh, working title has bought it. I'm terribly excited. They're a wonderful company. They, they did not just things you know well, like Bridget Jones' Diary and the, and, you know, Four Weddings and a Funeral, but they do all the Cone Brothers movies and the Theory of Everything and the Danish Girl. They just are a very classy, wonderful company with great people and they've bought it for film. So I'm writing the screenplay now. Mm. What's that like? And it's just, you know, one of the great things about writing the book is that um, it's there. I mean, if anyone wants to see me in full, it's there. It's written. So I'm so in in the writing the movie, I have to like I have to let go of stuff. I have to figure out what the most important elements are, how to hold on to the texture and character and, and lose other things. And I have to turn it into a visual story. Mm. Not to turn it visual, and I mean this is a Rochamon in as a as a um, book, but I don't see a reason to do that as a film, for instance, because what somebody's thinking. I mean, if you have the camera on one person and they don't, you can you can in, you can use film to create that same feeling without actually changing voices. You can have make it absolutely clear that one person doesn't know what's going on and the other does. It's not necessary to to do that. So it's, it's obviously not a, a, uh, you're lifting dialogue from the book and just putting it right into your screenplay, uh, 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 processor. And, and so, so it's what is not it? Quite, it's not like that. You really do have to reconceive it for film. And this is something that so many authors have, once they've stepped back, they've, they've sold their, the lucky ones who've sold their film rights to movie production companies and, uh, they step back. It's like, wait a minute, that's not the same thing that I've written. But here you are actually in control of that. No, I am so not in control. I can't even tell you. <laughs> um, but I'm a little more in control than that. Um, the, a screenwriter, even if it's your book, they can just fire you at any moment. That's why these stories, like this story, which is so precious to me, the Syracuse, is a book because nobody's firing me off my own book. Right. right. But, but you can fire a screenwriter. Anybody can. The director can decide he wants someone different. The the um, the actor can come on and say, "Oh, you know what? I have this writer I really like. Let's hire him hmm. or her, most likely him." Anyway, so. Um, 
that is, you are vulnerable. You have, and, and what you're writing, you know what? It isn't the movie. You're writing a blueprint for a movie. I mean, the movie will be, oh, this movie is, is being directed by Alfonso Gomez Freon, who did me Earl and the Dying Girl, and he's just a wonderful director, but it will be at least as much his if than mine, I mean, when it's done, and it will be the actors too. I mean, the difference is, is collaboration, and you know, nobody's collaborating with me on my book. So um, your parents were screenwriters. You and your late sister, Nora, both became writers. Uh, I'm the child of writers, and I know that can lead to uh, a lot of pressure to write and um, maybe some mixed feelings about being compared to one's relatives, whether the comparison's favorable or not. Is is that something that you've had to wrestle with? Well, first of all, there are four of us sisters, mm. and all four are writers. Um, so the imprint of my... My parents, I don't know if you had this because you're, are you writing? I'm trying to, but it, but it's hard, you know, because I keep going back and forth of, you know, what if I'm not as good as my parents? What if I'm better than my parents? You know, it's, no, uh, no, right. yeah, there's, both there's things, all, there's both all that things, stuff in the head, both things, all that baggage uh, operate. There's no question. But in my family, um, my sister, Nora, like she became a writer when she was like two years old, as far as I can tell. And then. I did not become, I didn't, I wasn't going to deal with it. I mean, my parents, my sis, my older sister, you know, I wasn't going to do it. So I put it off till I was 28 mm-hmm. to nine. And then I started writing. Then I thought, oh my gosh, I, this is really what I was meant to do. And I'm, my life is now going away. You know, it's, I'm getting on here and I better do what I mean to do. So I started at 29. My sister Amy started at 39. Mm-hmm. And my sister Hallie started in her late 40s. Wow. And they're all, we're all published writers, but the point is the family business, you know, to take it on, it just got more and more of a thing, right? Yeah. But in my family, that was the only thing that was rewarded. I mean, if I said uh, something funny, my dad shouted, that's a great line, write it down. <laughs> so I, I was like, that was it. My mother was raising writers. My father was raising writers. So I think the pressure was fantastic, even though they never said, you will grow up and be a writer. And, uh, you know, they don't have to, right? The family friends are coming in no, and going, oh, no. are you I writing? Mean, are you writing? Your, your mother doesn't need to tell you what she thinks. You know it. Right. Um, so so how do you sort of, uh, you know, many years on, how how, how have you kind of, I suppose I have a personal stake in finding out, uh, how, have you, how have you reconciled with that? How have you come to terms with that? Well, one thing is writing becomes habit. First, you have to teach yourself. You have to be disciplined, you mm-hmm. know. So that's a big thing to teach yourself discipline. And then it becomes habit. Then you don't question whether you do it. It's just part of your identity. And you're just every minute of every day. It just becomes part of how you see the world. You're, you're snatching things. Uh, writers are cannibals. They're always snatching this, that, and the other from everybody and everything. And and it, it's going into this, you know, something, somewhere, something you write. In fact, my character is Michael and Lizzie, they're always looking at their world and wondering what they're going to grab out of it to mm. use for their mm-hmm. for their work. And um, so, you know, and then it becomes love after it becomes habit. And it is almost like food for me. And this year, it's been such a difficult year because my husband died in October. And I, I tell you, I, I think I've just lived on writing. I mean, that's been my food. It's been where I'm at my desk. I know who I am. I'm happy there, you know. And um, so it becomes this thing that takes care of you. 
I almost think of that it's that it that it's for me it's almost a religion writing now. Wow. But that's the course of a lifetime of writing. And I think the big thing is to do it if we're looking for just do it. And by writing, do you mean book writing or would you include screenwriting in that? I'm too? not I'm not differentiating because I also write essays and right. I mean uh I write and I over the course of my life I've written all different things and I've liked that because there are different rewards from each one and also I've been able to prolong my career because if you know, and they they aren't interested out there in Hollywood if you're like over like practically over forty five. You could you can retire from the writers guild at age fifty two, which is pretty amazing, isn't hmm. it? So um but because I go back, you know, I then go back to my writing books, and then they get optioned, and then I'm still in the business, you know, and then somebody says, oh, whoa, well, because I just wrote a pilot for Showtime. So there's a kind of a way that each feeds the other. Mm-hmm. And, and, but for me, books, you know, that's my heart. I mean, yeah. Syracuse is a really big book for me in terms of, I can see I hit another gear writing it, and I could feel that happening as hard as it was. So... Um, you know, your books are your imagination, your heart, your, um, and a screenplay. I mean, I've had screenplays in development for 10 years and they never get made. That doesn't happen with books. Right. It's so wonderful that you've, that you've had that to lean on and find comfort in. Um, it's just, it's just this, this beautiful image of, of writing through grief. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been salvation. And my friends and my family. Friendship, very important thing. Well, um, so you've got this screenplay that you're working on now. Do you have mm-hmm. um, a sense of what's happening after that? Another another novel to live in your heart? Um, well, right now I'm doing the screenplay um, for Syracuse. And this novel this is like a, climbing a mountain or something. <laughs> You know, I think I need to, like, calm down for a while. Mm-hmm. And then after I do this screenplay, I actually have another screenplay assignment, which is uh, to write, oh, my God, it's, it's to write a movie for Meg Ryan to direct, and it's about the publishing business. Oh, that's exciting. Really? Yeah, it is. Great. So, but that's, you know, down the line this year. Uh, well, it sounds like that's that's going to be uh, quite quite an adventure. Um because you know, obviously, you're you're immersed in the publishing process. You have a sense of how it really works. Yes, but you know what? I'm interviewing because I have never actually worked at a publisher, and it is very interesting. What is interesting and about it? Say different. <laughs> oh, I can't tell you yet. But if and when this movie happens, right. I'll come back on the show. And okay. We'll talk all about it. Oh boy, that right. that would be lovely. That would be very right. exciting. Yeah. Uh, but you're you're getting to kind of talk to editors and publishers and people on the yeah, the people business are side. Being really fun and interesting. So, so this it. is going to be the network of, of publishing. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. It's a good idea. <laughs> well, right now my head is so in Syracuse, so uh, I, I haven't, you know, I just have some notes for that right now. You, you must be hoping that they're going to film on location. The way you described the, the, the town itself, you know, the, the stone streets and everything, it sounds like a wonderful backdrop. You absolutely, it has to be shot there. There's just no alternative for that. I mean, Syracuse is so specific. It would be like shooting Venice and not being in Venice. How could you create that, really? Mm. And uh, have you gone back, and what, what do you think you would uh, you would feel were you to go back? Oh, no, you know, I 
after I started the book, I thought, well, I have to go back. I mean, you can't just go to a place, visit it, and do a book. So I went and did a, a serious research trip there in which I did everything my characters would do. Mm. So, um, you know, I, look, my idea of a vacation is you just walk and eat. But um, in my book, Taylor is, is a culture person. So I went to the Greek ruins and I went to the Caravaggio and I did all the stuff she would do. I went to a Da Vinci exhibit. Then... You know, when I was Lizzie, I went to the food markets, which I, I was something I actually would do myself. And it's so beautiful, the food market there. It's this humble, wonderful place with millions of varieties of oranges and fish, fresh fish on slabs of ice. And I mean, it's kind of spectacular. And then you can Finn likes to cruise bars late at night and hang out and drink and just make friends with whoever he can possibly make friends with. And um, so I'm like at two in the morning. I'm in some dive bar, you know, uh, with the karaoke blaring. And I had to, I wanted, there's a boat scene, a very important scene on, in the book takes place on a boat. And uh, I hadn't been on a boat since I got seasick when I was 13. So I had to do that. I mean, it's kind of great because you travel as your characters. Mm-hmm. But do you have a, any challenge of finding yourself again at the end of it? Uh, no, not really. I mean, you just, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a, you know, I make notes all the time and I draw, I even draw when I'm on trips because it makes you look harder. I can't draw at all, by the way, I have no talent. I just do it to force myself to see better. And, um, and it's 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 fun because you're on the trip but you have a you have a job to do and also i got very lucky i made friends just by freakly connect freak little connections i i met some extraordinary wonderful people in in syracuse and they guided me through my book i could discuss anything with them and especially alex who's this architect she's so wonderful and she had lived there for 10 years and was fluent in english and just was able to, um, she vetted my book. She, I looked, I showed her all my photos. She, we talked about the sites I was going to use and what was true about them and what wasn't. And I had a lot of help and, and, um, generosity from other people. Well, it sounds like it's all come together into this wonderful project. Thank you. We've been talking with Delia Efren. You can find her book, Syracusa, in stores right now. Delia, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an amazing conversation. Oh, thank you. I had so much fun. I have a wonderful day. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Assistant News Editor John Marr talks about bookshops and Pokestops. Stay tuned. Yo, yo, what's up? I'm Daryl McDaniels, the author of 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Assistant News Editor John Marr is here to tell us all about how bookstores are making use of Pokemon Go. Hello, John. Hi, Mark. So thanks for talking to us. This is a, a great, very timely piece that, that is uh, on our website uh, and um, that you wrote. And tell us about this phenomenon, how Pokemon Go is entering bookstores. My pleasure. I, uh, as a kid growing up playing Pokemon, I never thought I would be talking about an article I wrote <laughs> showing how it helped bookstores. So um, just sort of as, a, as background, Pokemon Go uh, is a smartphone 
app game developed by Niantic Labs, which uh, was spun off from Google, I believe, a couple of years ago. Um, it was made in collaboration with the Pokemon Company, which is part owned by Nintendo, and uh, I think the Pokemon Company's general... What they do is pretty clear. Um, right. So so Pokemon Go is a an augmented reality video game. And the cool thing about this is that uh, that means that it sort of juxtaposes its game, um, its in-game stuff with the real world. So basically what happens when you, when you boot up Pokemon Go is you're presented with a map. Uh, that map, which is, uh, you know, there's a little player character on it and it's a, it's a visualization of, uh, the streets that are around you when the game is accessed. So let's say, uh, hypothetically you are in New York as we are right now. Um, if you have your phone out and you are playing this game, you will see a um, a pixelated, visualized version of the New York City streets uh, with little icons for uh, poke stops, which are places that you can stop uh, stop and and pick up items, and Pokemon, which are wander around, pop up every once in a while, and you can catch them uh, effectively in real life juxtaposed in augmented reality. So when a Pokemon pops up, you can click it um, on your screen or press that part of the screen and you will enter into a battle with that Pokemon and you'll attempt to basically catch it with, by flipping a little animated Pokeball at the Pokemon. Uh, you can, when you enable the augmented reality aspect of this, it allows you to juxtapose the Pokemon with whatever's around you. So let's say uh, you're in your office and you're next to your water cooler and you're talking to a colleague and uh, you're playing Pokemon Go while you do it and uh, a wild Charmander appears. Um, you can try to catch that and it may be sitting right next to the water cooler next to your friend while you're talking. Um, now, the way that this affects bookstores is uh, the, the game has these in-game in places called Pokestops, and basically what Pokestops are are places of significance, usually within the city. Sometimes they're landmarks, sometimes they're graffiti, sometimes they're uh, bookstores. And uh, those Pokestops, uh, you are encouraged to go to those Pokestops to pick up the things that are there. Um, usually they're Pokeballs, which are these things you use to catch Pokemon. Sometimes there are eggs, which grow into Pokemon after you walk around enough. Um, and basically what happens, uh, what, what we've heard from the booksellers that we talked to is this is actually helping them get foot traffic. So people will come if their store is either a Pokestop or near a Pokestop and they'll drop by, they'll look around the stores and uh, try to catch whatever Pokemon are there, try to get whatever items are lodged within the store in this augmented reality version of itself. And uh, some of them are buying books, which is a pretty interesting development. So um, you talked to some people who were, who were uh, ordering Pokemon merchandise, Pokemon manga to, to keep in the store. So clearly this is um, a phenomenon that they're hoping to capitalize on in all sorts of ways. I think yes. Uh, and I, I, the interesting thing about it is... Um, they don't actually need to do that in order to capitalize on it. The the most interesting, uh, or one of the most interesting uh, things I thought was that a, a, a bookstore in, in Missouri, which is not a Pokestop, um, was on a street with other po with a bunch of Pokestops. And what it sort of decided to do was, well, I, you know, the, the, the bookstore owner liked Pokemon, the bookstore owner knew what was going on, and, and so she figured out, you know what, let's let's capitalize on this and let me offer 10% off to anybody who comes in and shows me a screen grab with a Pokemon. Hmm. So all of a sudden, 
uh, players, Pokemon players, are incentivized to become book buyers just by playing the game. And and have you 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 spoke with several booksellers and and are others feeling that they're they're benefiting from this financially? People are going in buying. Have you talked to people who are like, I've seen nothing. It's a mix of both. Um, So uh, as I recall, there was one uh, there was one bookstore. I think it was in Ann Arbor, um, and they said that they they didn't see a ton of. Of uh, they didn't see a huge uptick in sales, but they did see an increase in foot traffic. You know, they would walk outside and see a bunch of people sitting outside playing around on their phones, um, and then you know be looking at the bookstore, and 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 they didn't know whether or not they were a Pokestop or not, right? Because they hadn't downloaded right. the game. Um, other stores are saying that yeah, people are stopping by. Um, I know there was an article uh, out earlier this week, uh, right around I think the same day that that my article ran. Um, talking about the Strand Bookstore in New York and how they didn't know they were a Pokestop until uh, a few days after the game was out, and all of a sudden there are these people just standing outside the Strand. They're a popular store, so it's probably harder for them to tell. Right. Um, but it, it, people are trying to capitalize on it, and some are, are definitely seeing an increase in sales because of it. How are Pokestops determined? Um, I believe it's in-game. So uh, the developers themselves uh, decide what places are going to be Pokestops and what places are not going to be Pokestops. Uh, that uh, bookstore in Missouri uh, was not, and I believe the owner wanted to lobby with them mm-hmm. uh, to try to get them to yeah, get I'm the sure store. Everybody to does. I'm, yeah. I'm well. Yes and no. Uh, bookstores, yes, um, but there's been some. Holocaust Museum or the Jewish History Museum. Yeah, the Holocaust yeah. Museum has uh, has has complained and asked to be removed. And uh, I was downtown uh, yesterday and walked by the uh, the Twin Towers Memorial, and mm. there were a bunch of people trying to catch Pokemon there. So, you know, there there are yeah, ways in which ideal. yeah, there are ways in which this has become uh, something that is you know as as with most popular trends like people kind of ignore the the sanctity of spaces while they're trying to catch that pikachu. Mm. So, <laughs> so um we're talking about increased foot traffic. This is something that uh, a lot of communities have wanted for a long time is to try to revitalize their downtowns and get people walking around. Uh Niantic also created another game called Ingress uh which uh, where where you uh, interact with monuments and that's had a similar effect of getting people out and strolling about but this the viral success of pokemon go has been uh spectacular so do you think this is going to be what revitalizes a lot of these towns and there you know gets people out of their cars and walking around i think there would be a deep irony uh if there if a video game video games got, saved us all right? <laughs> got people off the couch uh but but it is it is a really interesting thing and, and i would say that it is possible that the more that augmented reality and virtual reality games become a uh a reality, uh, I think they may actually start to do that. Uh, the interesting thing with with a lot of games now too is that um, after a while, some games allow uh, what they call downloadable content. So uh, other um, other developers, theoretically, bookstores could do this if they have a programmer on hand. Is it, it could develop things that you could sort of drop on top of the game and add on to the game so that there are different ways to interact. Pokemon Go hasn't said anything about that yet, but uh, there are a lot of possibilities there. As for getting people off the couch, I mean, look, I I see people wandering around glued to their phones all the time. 
Uh, there's, you know, been articles online about people getting out of bed at three o'clock in the morning and wandering down to the local park to catch a Pokemon because they couldn't sleep and running into a police officer and, and you know, who was suspicious. And all of a sudden the police officer downloads Pokemon Go. <laughs> you know, there, there, it is a really sort of interesting thing. And, and it does seem to be getting people to move. Um, so I mentioned eggs earlier. Uh, Pokemon eggs don't hatch until you've walked two miles while having them or something like that. I'm not entirely sure on the numbers, but it, it, it does encourage people to walk two miles because then all of a sudden who knows what Pokemon will hatch from your egg. Um, so, so I do think it, it, it is doing some really interesting things for foot traffic and it's also doing some really interesting things for uh, community building. Um, I've noticed uh, in my neighborhood more and more people talking, and you you know New York. We know we all keep our heads down and walk, um, but I've I've noticed more and more people sitting on the street corner, you know, moving their phones around looking for Pokemon, and and somebody down the block, you know, yells, "Hey, you know, there's one back behind the dumpster." <laughs> so uh, it it very well may increase some foot traffic. Hmm. Great. Well, it's a fascinating phenomenon. Thanks for digging into it and uh, giving us an update. And, my, my pleasure. Uh, maybe in a month or two, we'll we'll revisit this and see whether it's fizzled out or done something spectacular. You know, it does look like it, it could truck along for another month. I can't believe <laughs> that it eclipsed the popularity of Pokemon in the 90s, but go figure. <laughs> Anything's possible. Well, thanks, John. Great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Yaa Jesse, the author of Homegoing, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another fascinating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check these sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 